Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. Joining me in the co-pilot seat is Mark Kilborn. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm really excited to talk to our guests today. They're the sound crew from the recent Halo series streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I was super lucky to go into Formosa, Toronto and watch a few episodes in the room these shows were actually mixed in. It was glorious to hear it in Atmos. It was really exciting and it blew my mind. So joining us today, we have re-recording mixers Matt Chan and Lou Solikovsky. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. We also have sound supervisor Jane Tattersall. Hello, Jane. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you very much. Finally, we have sound designer Brennan Mercer. Brennan is uh, zooming in from Ottawa. How are you doing, Brennan? Very well, thank you. Above average. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Solidly above average. What more can we expect? The first question I wanted to ask everybody is uh, a sound design choice that was made on the show that I really liked. The idea of uh, hyperspace is something that's been in a million sci-fi projects. And uh, almost every time we've ever seen hyperspace it sounds the same. It's like a high-pitched synthy sound with whooshes going through it, uh, movement in the high-pitched frequencies. Slip space in Halo sounds completely different. It's almost like a rolling thunder. It was a new sound for me that made me really excited and made me think, oh, we're going places that I'm not going to be used to with the sound on this show. Brendan, as a sound designer, uh, how did you go about coming up with the sound for slip space? Episode two, it opens in slip space and we have our first kind of exit out of slip space in that episode. That was actually the first episode that we edited instead of doing episode one. And Matt has always said that he thinks that's kind of a great idea in terms of sound editing, like skip over the first insane episode where all these different characters and weapons and vehicles and battles are being established and maybe try to begin on an easier note. That has nothing to do with slip space. It's a but good, good point, though. Episode two actually wasn't that easy in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Although it was cool to do two first, we did it because of CGI. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't enough image in episode one to get started. <laughs> well, that makes sense. So you started with episode two and slip space. How, how did you come up with the sounds for that, Brian? We knew it didn't want to be too intrusive of the dialogue and that we needed to be kind of creating this bubble of sound for specifically the two characters of, of John and Quan, you know, they're in this cockpit together. It's meant to feel very intimate. So any kind of very sharp or shearing sounds were like out of the question. Um, so we had to keep it in the low frequencies, but I think all of us were on the same page that we really didn't want it to be just a rumble. I specifically wanted some kind of texture. That was kind of this... It almost feels like to me like a like a like a low end low mid felt kind of scratching on a microphone or something. So it was that idea of how not just about what would slip space sound like, but what would the actual physical ship moving through the space like what kind of resonances would happen there. And we did a lot of different interpretations like we did initial interpretations where it was much more musical. Um, because there's this idea of the spheres kind of, of like the spheres of like distortion and time space continuum moving together and what kind of harmonics would that create? So we, we tried all these different things and in the end we kind of settled on a much more 
simplistic version of what we thought would work. Lou, who handled uh, mixing dialogue and who handled mixing sound effects? I was on dialogue and Matt was on sound effects. So Matt, when you got the uh, sounds up on the faders, was it easy to duck it around the dialogue as uh, Brennan was just discussing? I would say like the initial passes, like because they were so musical, they started to blend in with score. They never really got, got in the way of the dialogue. But we, the more we talked about it, we knew that you know, it was going to be some sort of physical sound that the ship was being transmitted through the ship. A really good description that Frank O'Connor gave is that it was sort of geometrically perfect somehow. It was, it was not just like a random rumble or thrumming of the ship. It had to be something sort of mathematically interesting. And if you listen very closely to it, and it's probably much easier to hear in the mixing theater than at home, there's a very interesting like granular texture to it. Sort of related to Slip Space, one of the things that really stuck out to both Tim and I as we listened was the approach to space and whether there is sound in space. And I really, really enjoyed the approach you all took with, you know, flying through the asteroid field and dealing with the impacts and stuff. Of all the approaches out there, what pushed you towards that? Jane, do you want to tackle that one? You might be interested to know that they started off by saying, absolutely, we like the no sound in space and that's the way we're going to go. And then realistically, when we looked at the picture edit, there was dialogue happening on outside shots that, that continued into inside shots. So it was actually not really possible to go from talking inside and then suddenly silence outside. And not only that, but things would sometimes pass really close by. And while it it kind of cried out for some kind of sound. So the the rule that was made first then, of course, got broken. So that was like the, the working around it. Let's make it as silent as possible, but we have to have some sound. One of the first people involved was David Evans. So David Evans and Brennan worked together to create a sound which was like present but not present when we were on the exteriors. The asteroids, they have a presence, like they cut through enough, but they don't stick out enough that they provide too much contrast from the dialogue inside of the cockpit. It was really well done. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't want to just do an edit where Matt would just throw on a low-pass filter over top of everything. So we really tried to edit it with that in mind. Like there's plenty of low-end material, like low-end content for space material, but all the asteroids specifically, again, like one of those kind of textural, almost felt elements just to, just to stick something through. But we wanted to approach it not by creating a full edit and then low-passing it so it sounded underwater. We wanted to just have those, those mid-frequencies pop out just enough to, without giving it away that there was some kind of sonic content there and that to, to keep that illusion of being in space. And what makes it work so well is the contrast of, uh, as Jane said, you're going inside and outside of the ship. When we're inside the ship, we're hearing the full impacts of the uh, meteors. You're hearing alarms going off, the engines, rev- well, not revving, but the engines going. And then you cut back outside and you're all of a sudden limited to what you're hearing. It was really effective. That was a way of like... Like amping like, up the, yeah. the tension, like right? Like making the point without making the point. <laughs> As the scene evolved, we, you know, we really amped up what was happening inside the ship more and more. We had like sort of, I think we started with one alarm and by the end we had like three alarms that changed depending on what was happening with the ship. And yeah, and it was sort of uh, Steve Kane's request to really emphasize like contrast between the outside and the inside. The original temp sound had done like a full frequency mix for exterior space. 
So when we approached it, we made it full frequency. Many people on the team are a fan of sound and space, if, if that's okay to say. And we thought it would be exciting on our first few passes to make it really big on all the exterior space. And then we were given the direction that, no, 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 like, thanks, thanks for trying, but this has to be, we, we're committed to this vision of space is going to be relatively silent. And so the entire sequence kind of flipped on its head because we had the exterior passbys and exterior space being the exciting moments and then the interiors being like the kind of calm reprieve. And when that got flipped on its head, we had to make all the interiors much more interesting and, and much more um, dynamic. So yeah, you have those, the asteroids hitting the ship. You also have the little pellets um, tapping on the glass. You have the alarms. You have a, a bunch of different things. So... It all got flipped on its head once we presented it. We got a few runs at that. I remember at one point, Matt had two mixes saved because we did do a full run on the sort of like muted sound in space. He actually did have some really cool filter action. Do you want to talk about? Yeah, not to deny Brennan, but like there is obviously some, some you know, low passing of the elements on the outside of the ship. But I think because we were able to established that some textures like the asteroid textures could play much brighter then it gave me a lot of latitude to be like okay like so sometimes the filters open up further and further and further depending on how close an object comes towards the ship and it really helped in later episodes too because we didn't just have to commit to this sort of you know everything gets filtered at like i don't know like 100 hertz or something like that we had a we had room to play And then to add to that, at one point we had music. <laughs> <laughs> the producing group, there were quite a few people who wanted to hear different options. So we did mix it in a few different ways. And that was a request from the showrunner. Is like, you know, would score amp it up? Would it elevate it towards the end? So we did take a run at it that way. But in the end, I think everyone decided it was kind of a a braver sound choice and it really helped with momentum to kind of play it the way it ended up. Well, speaking of brave sound choices, there is something that is quite different than almost every show I've ever seen in the mix of this and that is the feet of the Spartans. You 
are aware when a Spartan is in the room at all times, just based on their feet. Their feet are mixed quite loudly, and they're also a really interesting sound. It's not just your classic, uh, you know, metal on a grate type sound. When did the choice to mix the Spartans' feet loudly come into play, and how religiously did you stick to that ideal once you set kind of the level against dialogue? Want to take that, Matt? I mean, the evolution of the sound of the Spartan feet is pretty interesting unto itself, so... Brendan, why don't you tackle that one? I can talk about how loud they got. <laughs> There's a lot of sounds that are existed in the canon of the Halo universe and of the game, and we wanted to pay complete respect and tribute to that. But when it came to the sound of the Spartans' footsteps and even more so their actual physical armor, that was an opportunity for a new sound that we were able to create and add to the canon. So we were really excited about that. Um, and Otto Bathurst, uh, one of the directors on the show, he was adamant that they needed to sound massive. They also needed to be, you know, stealthy and agile. So they, it needed to be something that it was like thunderous, but also like almost like a, a ninja kind of thing. We had a conversation before about um, talking about process is a good thing. It's great. We love hearing about how other people created sounds. And so I'm completely happy to just kind of tell the workflow that we came up with because I think it's kind of an interesting one and I don't think it's been done before. We had a Foley artist, Goro, from Footsteps is the name of the Foley company who does a lot of our, our great work. And they performed the footsteps on a surface so that we would have the kind of surface layer. So it be a sand or on metal or whatever. And we had them originally try to do some kind of moves track but it just wasn't working. It was never going to sound heavy enough. It didn't really have like the kinetic energy that you needed. So we quickly realized it had to be sound design. It had to be sound effects related. But it also couldn't be something that we were cutting for every single footstep, for every single move. Because from an editorial point of view, that's just not going to happen. If you have a Spartan moving around for 20 minutes in an episode, it would be too laborious. So in order to create a moose track, basically it took the Foley feet from footsteps from our Foley crew. And we did the kind of classic thing where you do audio to MIDI using the transients. And that basically gives you MIDI clips that can then trigger a sampler. And then you can layer whatever you want in to give you that big, heavy, thunderous footstep of the Spartan. And then those all get edited into the session. So those are your footspeed. Now you need a way to create a moose track. So I'm a really big fan of reverse reverb. Uh, reverse reverb is a trick that I use when I just want to make any natural sound just kind of be brightened up or, or sound bigger or just be cooler. Like if you take a good, interesting Foley sound and you just reverse it, add your reverb, then reverse it again, you're going to have this swelling effect that swells into your sound and it sounds semi-natural because it's a derivative of that original Foley sound. So we took those footsteps that were triggered by the sampler, we reversed them, applied the reverb, reversed that again, and now you have a swelling into each footstep, which is basically a moose track. And it's perfectly timed to every footstep because the space between each transient, it's gonna swell into it. Um, so then from there, you can kind of create whatever layer you want. So there's a kind of bass, synth bass um, sound that has an envelope on it 
that rises and decreases in pitch very subtly while a filter envelope opens up. And that creates this kind of sense of movement, this boom, boom. And along with that, there's a little bit of machine texture. And those two sounds are like the basis of the Spartan footstep, that kind of boom, boom in between each, each footstep. And then you use the plugin Envy to basically take your moves track and apply it to whatever sound you want. And that creates a whole new layered moves track. And you can just keep doing that and just keep creating layers. And that is how we created the Spartan moves. That's awesome. Thank you very much for letting us hear all the individual levels. Now let's hear it all together as one pass. That sounds so awesome. Uh, Matt, now that you've got the complete build of sounds, you want to talk us through how you decided to set the levels for the Spartans? Yeah, I mean, I think I tried to do like a, like with the feet, like a graceful, heavy version of it at the beginning. And then they just, you know, as things, these things happen, they're just like louder, louder, louder. And so we got it to a pretty good place in episode two. And then, of course, we went to episode one and we had the battle. And then we had the elite feet, the covenant elites, the, the big creepy aliens. And, you know, they had to be really loud, too. And the feet had to cut through all of the battle sounds and the music that was playing in episode one. And then after we went back from one to another episode, they're like, well, the feet don't sound as loud as they did in episode one. So I had to go back and, like, just crank the feet on every episode. Now I'm ruined forever for feet. I'm working on another show, and I feel the feet are not heavy enough. So, <laughs> so Lou, uh, let's bring you into the conversation here. Uh, you mix the dialogue. This series is just like a circus of uh, treatments on the voices. There's so many amazing treatments. You have uh, helmets, first of all. Uh, all the Spartans are in helmets at times. There's, like, scenes on alien planets with, like, moving walls. So I think there's some kind of special treatment going on in those rooms because it sounded really cool. Uh, there's also characters that are only being heard inside someone's head. There's hologram characters. There's aliens with super long throats. How did you go about treating all of these different treatments for all the dialogue in this? There was a lot of um, early prep work and discussions. So I would say it was like two years ago when uh, we got brought on to just have discussions and meet with uh, the 343 people and the showrunner. There were all these ideas being tossed out. And it was before we'd even seen Cortana or figured out how that was going to work. But um, so I just started doing, putting down ideas and like recording some things. One of the first things that came up was actually the sound of what does a Spartan sound like when they're in their suit and they're, you know, they've got their helmet on, but they're talking to someone standing outside. I think everyone's desire was that, it, you know, it can't be robotic. It has to not be like mid-rangey because the technology is so advanced and at points it should kind of sound threatening if they need it to. So it's got to have some weight to it. I think the first experiment I did was I went into our recording room and got a big, huge bass amplifier. And I brought 
my guitar amplifier from home. I turned up all the bass on them and I made some impulse responses. Shot that out to Otto and Steven just to see how they felt. And they actually want it bigger than that. And uh, and so the problem with the impulse responses was that it, it wasn't direct enough. You know, it was like the character, but there's also some room and speaker cabinet action and stuff like that. So then I went to software and, and I think, you know, it saved my life to do that because there were so many revisions after that and there's so many different situations that I'd have to get into. So basically I, I use amplifier plugins to create, it, it had to feel amplified, but not dirty and distorted. I decided early on to do it in stereo because I just wanted it to emanate out from the suit rather than feel like it was coming from a mouth. Otto actually asked for something that I thought was really cool, which was a, you know, these suits are made of like this very advanced metal alloy. So the sound should maybe ring off a little metallically, you know, as they speak. So we added a layer of that, um, obviously some layers of bass enhancement and then the, the slightest amount of kind of like flange delay just to help create the width. I was numbering the revisions and I think that was like 11D that we, <laughs> that we ended up with. So over the course of two years, Cortana was a similar story. Um, there's already some Canon Cortana, you know, to start with, you know, there's a real desire to hear you know, what Cortana sounds like in the room and what Cortana would sound like in Master Chief's head. So we went through a number of revisions there. And um, what I ended up with Cortana in Master Chief's head is, and it was unfortunate for our ADR supervisor, uh, Dale Sheldrake, but I needed a tight mic on her for every line. So we did all her lines. Like she, she was done in mocap. So we had a bunch of clean lines, but they weren't really mic'd specifically enough. So we did all of her uh, whenever she was speaking inside the head. And uh, with that tight microphone on top of that, I still included sort of a gating sound that would um, even make it feel like a little bit muffled, but, you know, feeling like it's emanating between your ears and... Uh, and then, again, a little bit of modulation on it. Also, in Atmos, when she speaks inside his head, it's in multiple speakers, correct? A really cool thing, which you can hear in Atmos, not so great on headphones, but is there's a floaty aspect to her. So uh, I'm using a brower to kind of float her in the space a little bit and just moving gently back and forth, front to back, side to side in kind of a random pattern. So it's very gentle, but, but it just, it helps it not be when you, when you do like a mono source in all speakers, sometimes it just feels like it's all around you, but it doesn't feel real. So, um, so I, I threw that movement in to kind of help delineate that. It sounded really cool. When I was in the room at Formosa, the first time she spoke in his head, I sat up in my seat and was like, Whoa, that's amazing. That sounds so cool. So uh, congrats on that. That's really cool. 
And what about the uh, the aliens? Uh, I, forgive my ignorance. Uh, I can't remember what they were called. Uh, the aliens that in the floating chairs with the really long necks, not the battle aliens. The prophets. Prophets are a great story because they were the easiest part of my life. <laughs> Every other alien component needed processing. The prophets were cast actors who did it all with their voice. And I swear to you, I did nothing. Wow. Except for put them in a room. And then that one thing you mentioned um, when we were in high charity. So one of the concepts was that in high charity, a lot of the rooms have an organic membrane. Like it's not like concrete walls or anything like that. With the organic membrane, I thought it would be cool if just when the prophets spoke that the walls kind of reacted to their speech and kind of vibrated and rippled all around you with sort of a kind of like a rumbly fluttering kind of sound. I nailed that one the first time, actually. Oh, baller. <laughs> that was, it, it was luck. Excellent. Uh, everything else needed lots of revisions, but that one, people heard that one and they're like, yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> So something I've been thinking of is you keep talking about how you got to listen to this in the Atmos Theater, and I totally didn't because I'm stuck in Austin, <laughs> Texas. I'm assuming not everybody had an Atmos room at home while you were working on this. Um, and I read in our email discussion that uh, you all worked with uh, binaural setups. I'm curious to hear a bit about what your workflow was in terms of monitoring. Lou, do you want to take this one? With COVID going and we knew that we'd be getting into playbacks where like usually people fly in and visit us for at least a few episodes. And in this case, it wasn't going to happen. And in fact, I don't think in L.A. like really anyone was able to go anywhere even if we could send a, a file to a studio for them to listen. So a couple of years ago, we bought the Smythe Realizer, which is a an encoding system to binaural for Atmos files. And we played around with it a lot. It's tough, actually, to get something really good out of it. You, you kind of have to mess with it a lot because the premise of it is you shoot your room like as an impulse response, and then it applies that to a binaural encoder, and then you put on a set of headphones, and you should be feeling like you're in that room. Uh, before we bought the Smythe, we were actually experimenting with a binaural head in the room and listening to our Atmos mix like in the room next door to see how close it sounded. Um, so we were kind of onto an idea like that, but the Smythe made it easier. And so in the end, what ended up happening was we shot a number of different impulse responses for all the different speakers. And then we assembled our own custom set of 
impulse responses from the group of them to make one room that sounded as close as possible to our room. So that's the playback file setup that we use on the Smythe. And then um, that binaural feed was sent out or recorded uh, on the files that we sent out. And we just insisted that everyone who was really in the decision-making process get the same set of headphones. So it's not like you can, you know, get everyone listening perfectly in perfect environments, but at least if they were all wearing the same headphones, then the notes would come to us with a very common thing. You know, it was like, is it too bassy? Well, everyone's got the same headphones, so it's too bassy. So um, those are the steps that we took to be so remote and to not have the key creatives be in the room with us. Um, I was editing using Dolby Atmos production suite and was able to receive binaural renders. At the start of the process, you're editing in a manner in which you know the client, they're going to be listening to an even better version of that because it's the Smythe Realizer, as, as Luz talking about, but you're, you're having almost this built into the workflow of the edit and the final product being all monitored in the same way. And I don't know, for, for me specifically, like there's never been a more accessible time for a sound editor, designer, whatever you may be, to be able to work remotely and pan your objects or just normal um, information in Pro Tools and pan it in an Atmos environment that you can then deliver. And I literally just need a solid, amazing pair of headphones and Dolby Atmos production suite and Pro Tools Ultimate, and you're good to go. And you will have extreme detail. I think, honestly, like I've, I've, I don't have, I'm hoping that one day I can have a really well-tuned 5.1 or 7.1 room. Um, but it takes a lot. You need, it's a, it's a big budget. You got to build the room. You need to find the space, or you got to be able to rent the space and build the room. And so far, all those cards haven't lined up for me. And when I edit in even stereo or stereo and surround, and then I compare that to what I'm getting on this AKG 712 pair of headphones, this is a more detailed representation and a more detailed, for me, in, a, in, you know, in, an, un in an untreated acoustic room. These are farly superior than anything I'm going to be able to, to get. So if you don't have the money or the space to be able to create a room and acoustically treat it, then it's, it's pretty incredible that with a three-month free DAPS trial, sorry to make this into a, an advertisement, a free advertisement for DAPS, <laughs> but with a, with a $1,000 pair of headphones and a free trial of DAPS, you know, you can, you can do that, and it's incredible. Um, up until very recently, there's no way you could be able to work on sound design for Halo. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, this is, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I'm kind of chiming with my own story, but we are still remote where we are. Our studio has been extremely cautious about letting the audio team back into the building. Um, so we now have people using the the Windows render of, uh, of for Atmos through headphones. We're all using the same pair of headphones, and we're also using that new uh, customized HRTF thing that Dolby has got their little phone app. So it's been a game changer for us because we can work on our, I mean, I've got a big room, but the rest of the team doesn't. We can work on the game in Atmos, in headphones. It's not perfect, but it's way better than anything else anybody's going to have at home. And it's it sounds pretty good. Like, I'm impressed with it. That's really cool. I guess the caveat being that, like, if 
like it needs to be mixed in a proper location, of course. You know, like I couldn't, I couldn't do, I couldn't, we couldn't deliver to TV all working on on headphones like this. Like it needs to go to yeah. to Matt and Lou and and Jane on the stage at Formosa. But um, from an editorial point of view, it's it's a fantastic. Something that blew my mind when I went into Formosa to hear it was the details of the ambiences. It was really amazing. There's a bunch of scenes. Uh, I think it's in episode one where uh, two characters talk on a balcony of a building and there's kind of an establishing shot and then the rest of it is just kind of their faces talking back and forth. But you feel that entire uh, futuristic city throughout the whole scene. Yes, Silver Team is gearing up to bring in Master Chief peacefully. Let's talk about how 117 escaped. Also, the main city in Madrigal is so full of movement and life. And then in episode two, when they go to the uh, the planet, the rubble, the ambiences in the hallways and stuff like that in there, everything was so detailed and so full and so busy. Jane, can you talk me through your philosophy with ambiences and how you like to build them? Well, I, I always love ambiences, like whether, whether you're on a different planet or whether you're just in a downtown Toronto. Like to me, ambiences are, they give you a sense of place and they give you a sense of, of time. It works on you almost unconsciously. So like I've known Brennan for a long time and my interest in ambiences was just communicated to Brennan when he was an intern. So it's been something that the two of us have always been like got such a lot of pleasure out of. I've never regarded it as like, oh, somebody else can do that because that's just boring air and some traffic and there's some couple of birds. It's like, what is the sound that's that's going to create the world that the audience is going to be in and not be aware they're in, but they're just, they just believe it. So I've always liked putting detail in and it, like, sure, most people don't even really notice it, but I get huge satisfaction out of adding the detail that contributes. And then Brennan has just extended that way beyond whatever I, I've done. And, and David Caporelli is our other sound effects editor on the show. And he did the majority of the, the ambience on this show. And we both were trained under Jane. And that's one of the big highlights, I think, for the both of us, is when we trained under Jane, it's like all the BG specs for her were always treated like specifics. Like so much attention to detail was put into every BG spec on anything she's ever worked on. And it really, it just solidified that in both of our minds, that this needs to be, like, this has the potential to be a star. Like, you know, having some singular bird that has a beautiful call, or if you're in the rubble in Halo and you have some crazy alien-sounding bird alarm going in the background and a pounding piston, those can make an entire sequence. And that's that's 100% from Jane. She, she taught Dave and I both that. Matt, how did you approach mixing the ambiences? Well, I was lucky because uh, David and Brennan, because they both had daps, they panned them all for me in advance. So that was really nice. 
for once. Um, but there were a ton of BG specs, especially in the Rebel. And, you know, we started with a lot, and Otto just kept asking for more and more and more. So what you've heard is probably, like, three or four revisions of, of just BG specs. I think it's also helped because one of the producers on the show, and she's worked with all of us on many different shows, her name is Sheila Hawken. Well, she appreciates ambiences. So once when someone says, I like the such and such, then you then keep going down that path. But she's she also pushed to have more sound in that area. And obviously, you know, because it's Halo and it's science fiction, there's a lot of latitude to have really interesting and new sounds. You're not sort of beholden to, you know, if you're in Toronto, you'd sort of be stuck with certain kinds of sounds. But here, there was a lot of places we could explore. Speaking of being beholden to sounds, uh, something we haven't touched on is the fact that this is an existing property franchise that already existed in the video game realm. Were you given a library of sounds from the sound team on the games or how how did you go about uh, dealing with legacy sounds? Brennan? Every time a new piece of technology or weapon or vehicle came up, we would either be flagged that, you know, this is a sound that you need to check in on and uh, Kiki Wolfkill, Kenneth Peters, Frank O'Connor, they were kind of the the gate holders of Halo lore and information for us. And whenever we would ask about something, we'd get these incredibly detailed responses um, from anything from what kind of material they're made from to what time and what time in the universe. And, you know, if something didn't already exist, well, it could be related to that. So maybe you should take elements from there. And we were given these huge source sessions um, that, incre- that included all the different layers. Um, But the interesting thing that I think we learned that wasn't immediately obvious is that if you ask any Halo player, like, what's your favorite weapon in Halo? They'll have an answer. So they'll say the assault rifle. But then furthermore, they'll say assault rifle in Halo 3. So it's not like there's iconic, like, baked-in sounds that have stayed consistent over the course of the video game. And I really respect that. I think it's awesome. Like the sound designers in the game are constantly refining and evolving their sounds. So there are similar elements and like an assault rifle does kind of sound one way while the battle rifle sounds another, but the sounds change from game to game. We had this ability to have a little bit of latitude with how we created it, but also trying to stay, you know, true to what the original intent was behind a given class of weapon. And now it's been really cool because on YouTube, there's all these different people from the Halo game fandom, which basically take their favorite version of a weapon from a different game and then just put it on top of our mix and just like, this is the way like, I would edit it if I could. And it's, it's interesting. And now I'm following all these Reddit forums where I'm like, oh, like, I need to check out the assault rifle in Halo 3 and 5 because those are the ones that people seem to really like. As I mentioned many times to Mark Chagrin, uh, I was able to go in and hear a couple episodes in Formosa. And one of the episodes that we saw, I believe it was episode 5, had a massive battle scene in it. It wasn't like the whole episode, but maybe 10, 12 minutes long. And it was loud. <laughs> and we actually got the uh, playback lowered a little bit and it was still really loud. I'm wondering, uh, Matt, Lou, maybe Jane, if you were there, how do you just like survive a day of mixing a scene like that without hurting your ears like long term? Like it was it was something like it sounded amazing. I don't mean this in a negative way, but like how do you uh, avoid ear fatigue when doing that? I think to be perfectly fair, like we don't work on a lot of shows like this. So when we mixed the battle on in episode one, I think Lou and I were both so excited. You know, we were like, you know, music and, and the music is really huge. So a lot of it is like 
negotiating with the music and figuring out how to punch everything else through it. Uh, so it gets really loud, and we were mixing in 85. But I think after episode one, we decided to take a more sort of tag-team approach to doing passes, where we would sort of do put our premixes together, put the music in, and do like a sort of a balance pass together. And then we'd say, okay, like, okay, Lou, you work on the on the grunts and the alien sounds, and Matt, you work on the gunshots. And we'd just sort of take turns, like, leaving the room to deal with it. Big point being you'd physically leave the room, right? Yeah, yeah. Having short ear breaks. So that 12-minute battle, we had multiple passes on it. But I would say easily, you know, it took two days if you add up all the passes. So first pass would be, like, get all the key lines through and get the music shape to be to have the right momentum and build. And I would, like, leave the room for 20 minutes and then Matt would take a a pass and get all his details in after going back and forth a, a few times, then we would sort of take our final sweep. And that's where we really figured out, like, you know, would it be easier to, like, move this line four frames so then you can get the shield sound in and, like, can Cortana be, you know, a little bit positioned a little differently so that you can hear that uh, gunfire and including, like, can I mute these two percussion hits so we can hear more of the elite footsteps so all those kinds of things you have to work interactively and together and that's probably where we got the most amount of detail done but yeah you can't do that for eight ten hours a day so sometimes you just have to leave the room let the other person work and then come in and let them take an ear break and then the vfx would be updated and we'd do it again <laughs> Thank you very much for talking with us today. You all were gracious enough to get me into Formosa as well as get me a screener of a bunch of episodes. And uh, the second the screeners end, I immediately went and signed up for Paramount Plus so I could see the rest of the series as it came out because I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Congratulations on all all your hard work paying off. It was really fun to watch and hear. Congratulations. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.